Welcome to Decision, Decision Space. Space. The only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Brendan Hansen. I'm Jake Friedman. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. And today we are going to be talking about Gon's Sean Clever, aka That's Pretty Clever, aka Gon Sean Whatever, designed <laughs> by Wolfgang Warsh, amazing designer who's also done games like The Mind, one of my personal favorite games, like literally probably close to a top 10 game for me. Also Quacks of Quedlinburg, Wavelength, Tavern of Tiefenthal. I feel like just like an all-star designer that perhaps isn't revered as much as uh, his quality output demands. But that's a topic for another time. Super excited to get into this conversation about his most well-known roll and write style game. Brendan, how are you doing today? What are you feeling about this episode? I'm doing really well and I'm excited about this episode. I do feel like with Wolfgang Warsh, he's he seems like one of the most preeminent breakout designers of the last half decade, right? Like Almost everyone knows that name. And if you don't, you know one of his games. Just because he hit the market like a, I don't know, a, like a rush of inspiration with The Mind and Quacks and Gontran's Clever coming out basically all in the same year almost, or within a year or two. It's it's pretty amazing. Yeah, he's kind of like a PWH type of guy, sort of like your favorite game designer's favorite game designer category. But I don't see his name brought up you know, when people are like, what's your yeah. favorite designer? You, you typically get the Uwe Rosenberg, Stefan Feld, Jamie Stegmeier. Rainer Knizia. Rainer Knizia. Yeah. Yeah, I knew I was forgetting one. <laughs> Richard Garfield. And that's kind of like pretty close to full stop. Yeah. But I think these guys, and Wolfgang Borsch is just somebody who's been producing amazing game after amazing game and may well soon find his way sort of into the hive mind as, as a person in the conversation. Inspirationally refreshing, refreshing designs too. Totally, yeah. yeah. Before we get into this week's episode, I want to tell our pre-planners, that's those of you who like to play games along with us to get more out of these episodes, perhaps, if you so choose. We will be covering next week, Baron Park. Speaking of PWH, one of his most famous joints. Um, and we'll be joined by friend of the show, and game designer Paul Solomon for that. So really looking forward to that. I think we're going to release that as the next episode following this one. After that, we'll have some other ideas in the hopper, but one game we wanted to let you know now that we're planning to cover in the near future is going to be Rift Force, my game of the con for Geekway that I raved about last time. Fortunately for us, and perhaps you, it is in alpha on Board Game Arena right now. So those of you with alpha access can go there and play it. If you don't have alpha access, join us in the Decision Space Discord. And somebody with alpha access uh, or access to this game, like myself and Brendan, can invite you to a game. And we would love to play more games of Rift Force with you. Uh, so the link for the Discord, as always, is in the description of this podcast. So join us there. Let's play these games and then uh, look forward to those episodes. And lastly, before last piece of housekeeping here, before we get into this conversation, we want to make a pitch, an appeal to you, listener, for reviews for this podcast. Over the past 30 days, one month period of time, we've sadly got zero new reviews. We're not upset. We're just disappointed. But no, seriously, that's probably the way that you can help our show grow the most. Um, it's really easy to do. You just click over to, uh, I think you can do it on Spotify now. You can definitely do it on iTunes. You can also do it on Podcast Addict, probably wherever you listen to the show, you can find a way to give us a review. We'd love to read out on the show and it would mean a ton to us if you would take the time to do that. And we've really learned over the course of the past 70 almost episodes that reviews in addition to telling your friends, which is the optimal, optimal way to support the show, like wherever you're going, just have it blaring out of your boombox, whatever, right. you know. If you yeah. someone's in your car, captive audience, great time yeah, to plug yeah. the Decision Space podcast. Exactly. Second only to those options, reviews are an incredible way from the comfort of your home to support the show. And it really means a lot to us, to all of you who've already done that. Uh, but if you haven't had the chance, give us your thoughts. Tell us who's better, Rainer Knizia or, or Stefan Feld. Tell us uh, what your favorite Paul Solomon game is, Genotype or Honeybuzz. 
Tell us if Jake was wrong about a game he played at a con. Tell me that I'm dumb for liking light games. I don't know, but I'd love to hear it in a review, especially if it's five stars. Awesome. All right, well, let's get right into this week's episode, and we'll start with this game deep dive discussion, as we always do, with our own personal ratings and brief slogans, captions, whatever you want to call it for this game. So, Brendan, why don't you give us first your review and then kind of your capsule, your rating and your capsule review. Okay, so in classic fashion, this is a very light game. So I have a pretty long little segment here. So I'm (laughs) sorry, Jake. (laughs) On road trips growing up, though, Jake, my family would pass around this handheld electronic Yahtzee game. uh, And this little electronic version of Yahtzee made for quick plays of this of that foundational roll and write, and it tracked high scores. So whenever we would go on road trips, we would play countless games of Yahtzee um, on this little like Game Boy-like delightful Yahtzee machine, and it would go on for years. And I think that if I had had a similar device for That's Pretty Clever, uh, roll and writes would be my favorite genre. I think I can say that this device made roll and writes a genre I really love. Uh, but the decisions tucked away in Gonchon's Clever are delightful, interesting, and fun, and they do make you feel pretty clever. So I really appreciate the timing aspects of the puzzle drawn out from the bonus action system and trying to sort of find the horizon on when to spend resources uh, feels really great. And a high score in Gonchon's Clever does feel delightful, but there's also aspects of this game that can be really frustrating. Dice-driven randomness doesn't always reward optimal decisions, and being arbitrarily punished for taking the quote-unquote right path can be a bear and a little bit frustrating. And at the end of the day, the puzzle in Gonchon's Clever is the puzzle in Gonchon's Clever. I don't. Are, are we going to call it Gonchon Clever? That's pretty clever. Maybe we'll discuss that as well. Despite all of this, That's Pretty Clever is an excellent game, 8 out of 10. How about you, Jake? For me, Gonchon's Clever is a 7 out of 10. It's like Yahtzee, but better. <laughs> That's mine. <laughs> Which I think we kind of just said the same thing, but... And you wrote that one down this week. No, I, I just came up with it while you were going on and on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it looks like you're reading it off the screen. No, I mean, I mean it's a game I is very pleasant. It's very fun to play. It's not always what I'm in the mood for, but so quick, so fun uh, and short. And it's great to have that little app on your phone. Great for flights. You know, that's kind of the place it serves in my collection. Um, But yeah, let's get deeper into the decisions here. Uh, Again, the background, Wolfgang Worsch, done a bunch of other great games, one to four players. And Brendan is going to now give you his amazing rules overview. Brendan, take it away. That's Pretty Clever is a roll and write game for one to four players in which players use six different colors of dice to fill in five color-coded areas on their player sheets, each one corresponding to a color of die in the game. Blue, green, yellow, purple, and orange. The final die is a wild white die that lends the game flexibility and amplifies the nuance of the decisions in the game. That's Pretty Clever is played in rounds. At the start of each round, the active player rolls all six dice. Then they select one of them to use to mark off a box on their sheet, setting that dice aside. Any die that are lower in value than the die they selected are moved to a separate area. Then the player rolls again with any dice that are remaining, repeats this process, and finally to complete their turn, does this one more time, a third time. There's tension in the system because you want to select higher value dice, but in doing so, you might risk removing more dice from the pool. At the end of the active player's turn, each other player selects one of the dice that was moved to the box lid and marks them off on their sheet in the corresponding color and value. Then the active player shifts to the player to their left, and that player rolls the dice and repeats this process again. Each of the game's scoring areas depict boxes, some showing values uh, that are specific. For example, in the yellow area, players are trying to complete rows and columns by using the yellow die or the wild die to mark off specific values. One, two, three, six, five, etc. In the green area, each box shows a value that the player must use a green die greater than. For example, the first box is greater than one, the next box is a green die greater than two, and so on, until they get to five, then it resets back down to one. This repeats on that track a number of times. By filling in boxes, players 
earn points, and each area has specific rules for point scoring, but they also can unlock bonus actions. For example, completing a box on the purple track might allow the player to fill in a box on the orange track with an orange four. These bonus actions can stack, setting off a chain reaction. Other bonus actions include re-rolling the dice or taking a bonus action using the one of the dice the active player hasn't yet used this round. After a set number of rounds based on the player count, players tally up their score and the player with the most points is crowned the victor. At its core, That's Pretty Clever is an impossible and delightful optimization puzzle with chewy and snappy decisions. Thank you, Brendan, for that fantastic rules overview for this light game. Um, and yeah, you kind of invoked this earlier, but maybe we should just really quickly talk on like, it's kind of weird, right? How this game has two names. Yeah, it is. Because it's, it's a, got a German language name, Gone Sean Clever. And then in parentheses, it says, that's pretty clever. I think that's on the box, right? Yeah, in parentheses, on at least the like uh, Stronghold Games version published localized in the United States. Uh, right. It says like, uh, it for all you dumb people who don't know German, it, that means that's pretty clever. But then the board game geek name, the one officially published in the metadata in English is that's pretty clever. But it's just weird, right? Because like lots of games are German designs published first in Germany and then localized the United States. And we never really you know, would invoke the German language name. Same for any other language. You just go with the translated name. So I don't know how or why this game gets such special treatment by the board game community. Yeah, I don't get it either. Though Gonchon's Clever is, I don't even know if I'm saying that right. I'm sure to all German speakers, they're totally cringing that I'm saying it in this way. But I will say, saying it right or wrong, whichever I'm saying, is a delightful thing to do. It's fun to say that word. And I wonder if in translation, they felt like they couldn't emulate it closely enough to capture the real spirit. So it, the, the hyphen, the hyphenated name uh, or the parenthetical name, excuse me, is like a concession over the fact that like, well, we tried to localize it, but nothing's going to be as good as the original title. That would make sense. And I also think like that's pretty clever. It's kind of a lame name for a game. Yeah, it's not that clever. It's it's like a weird little flex, right? It's yeah. like it's like oh, because it doesn't feel like it's not like I'm so clever. It's like that's so clever. Like it feels like it's talking about the game. The game designer is saying this is yeah. a little clever. It's a clever little thing that I'm showing you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, the the game itself is clever. Right. That's right. Yeah. We'll see how we'll see how you shape up. Yeah. yeah. Not you, schmuck. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so and you yeah. know you're supposed to say that while you play i guess right like that's the idea like yahtzee oh no that that's pretty clever right is that, that a that's thing kind of, I what think are you talking about that's kind of the idea like yahtzee is like an exclam exclamation of you yeah, know but yahtzee not to go like too far down the rebel like yahtzee is like a very much like a defined thing in the game like a yahtzee True. is getting five of the same well, die face there's no like that's pretty clever role or like <laughs> achievement in the game is it right? i think the when you combo things you're like that's pretty clever that's what you say <laughs> yeah that's what you say All you right. like get your your blue six to, to trigger you finish the row and then that you get to put in the yellow box and the yellow box you get to put the no, green yeah, box i know i know like, i get that i get that that's pretty clever i i do not say that when i play but Let's actually segue this because the reason I do not say that when I play is because I have 100% played this solo. Mm. Have I'm so I'm curious, have you played this like as a multiplayer experience or like what's your yeah. play experience with this? I have primarily played it solo on the app, which is excellent. Uh, I yeah. really enjoy the solo app and I think that's why I'm invoking that solo Yahtzee experience, but I have played it once with other people. And I really enjoyed it that way too. And I think the decisions, we'll get into it, but I think the decisions of dice drafting become so interesting, but they're still really interesting in the, in the solo game because of the mechanic of you typically want really high value dice for most three of the buckets, well, two and a half of the areas. And then for two of them, you don't care. And that it's just this interesting puzzle of how to, navigate what dice you're taking what you're giving to other people potentially or what you're leaving for yourself but, but so you never sat there and you said that's pretty clever not once that's pretty clever 
Maybe I was like, Jake, what do you say? (laughs) What's going on? (laughs) Dude, you know this thing where it's like some people don't have an inner monologue in their Mm. head, allegedly? Yeah, allegedly. I mean, I definitely do, right? I can like hear myself talk in my head. So maybe in my head, I would say like, that's pretty clever while I was playing the game. Yeah. It'd be but so never lonely. in like an excited in my head voice, <laughs> more of like a studious like, mm, yeah, that's, you know, yeah, like it should be called like, oh hell yeah, when you that's roll right. all sixes or something. Oh wait, that's just Yahtzee. Man, we are getting off the rails today. That's normally not our bit. We're usually so focused. Okay, <laughs> so let's actually try and characterize the decision space that exists within this game, and also I'm interested as we go, just kind of thinking about. The decision space that exists in roll and write games. I think there's another reason this invokes Yahtzee mm. in a way that something like Cartographers, another, it's not a roll and write game, it's a flip and write game um, that we covered, or even uh, going way further back when we looked at Welcome to, also, also a flip and write game, but those don't inv- invoke Yahtzee because they're themed, I think. Yeah. And this one is not. This is really just like Yahtzee. Like, here's your sheet of paper. Here's dice. They represent numbers. And you're going to put those numbers on your board. So I think it's kind of interesting to look at this, like, hobby board game version of Yahtzee as sort of a a lens through which to view kind of, like, the core of what roll and write games are and kind of the decision spaces that they tend to offer. Yeah. And I think that this is very easily, very clearly a waning decision space game. Over the course of the game, the amount of available decisions that you have is decreasing. Though there are a few elements, mechanics in the game that help uh, challenge this and help give you agency over when that decision space dramatically wanes, right? You're playing this resource management game of when you use your rerolls, when you use your plus ones, and also when you decide to trigger certain bonuses because you have control if you set it up correctly over when you create these chain reactions by waiting to maybe fill in a certain row in the yellow box such that you could, you know, set this off to set this off to set this off. So you do have agency over the shape of waning. But in my mind, the prototypical roll and write decision space is a waning decision space. Right. A game that doesn't do that is trying to buck the trend and be cute. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's overall waning for sure with interesting kind of touch points where the game will actually infuse you with like high agency. I'm thinking specifically, I think it's at the end of the the beginning of the third round where you get to mark off any box Mm -hmm. that you have available with a six or an X or whatever. And it's that that's all of a sudden like it's interrupting the waning decision space that the entire game occupies where you start off with this, you know, pure pristine sheet of paper that you can fill in, you know, that you will fill in more and more boxes over the course of the game. And then you will have less and less available to you. Um, And it says like, it interrupts that and says like, actually here's a moment where you can ignore that waning decision space that is so pronounced in the game and do whatever you want. And by drawing such a stark contrast there, that makes the juxtaposition of the decision you get to make right now versus what you're doing over the course of the game feel so fun and exciting. And it does that in a couple ways, as you mentioned. And leads to, you love that moment, right? Oh, yeah. That, yeah. I think yeah. that's like one of the, you know, maybe we'll talk about it more specifically, but it, I think that's probably one of the most, I mean, it's fun because it makes you feel powerful, right? Totally. In a way that... uh numbers on paper and dice game probably really has no right to do it's like and i think it's also can be a really interesting moment kind of a pivotal moment where you get to choose your strategy for the game yeah and ideally you're kind of planning a strategy prior to that like planning for it but yeah there's you get to kind of make like a big bet there which can make you feel clever because you're setting up for that moment that you know is coming jake shaking his head again i'm turning off the podcast (laughs) (laughs) i'm pulling up synonyms right now Um, (laughs) but i i think that that moment is indicative of this being a game that's trying to it's not a waning decision space game that wants the player to struggle there's a lot of waning decision space games where over the course of play the game and the fun in it is 
in figuring out what you're going to do as your agency disappears and your opportunities are disappearing in Gonchon's Clever, but because you're getting new bonuses and because you're sort of activating these powers, it can feel like your agency over the course of the game is actually increasing and that the game is is taking care of you as a player in that way, which I think is actually what unlocks the fun is you see the walls closing in around you. But as that happens, you are getting more tools to fight back. We talk about like tools given to the player a lot. And I think that this is an interesting game that in a really simple way is like, as you play Wolfgang Warsh is just chucking you tools. Like here's a spanner, here's a saw, right? Like as you go, the game is like, that's the game. It's like catching these tools and figuring out where to slot them in. And a lot of, other winning decision space games that we've played don't necessarily do that. And that's a cool feature. I hadn't thought about it that way before. So I still kind of want to like rephrase that for the audience. Cause I think you're dead on. And that is exactly what makes this game so interesting, which is that, you know, the designer has basically made it so that you've got a winning decision space that is emphasized by every part of the game. Yeah. You know, what you're doing round around with less and less dice, what you're doing on your board, the game decisions are waning and waning. But as they wane, you are getting sharper and sharper tools to play in that space. And it does that with the rerolls, right? By the end of the game, sometimes you have four rerolls where you can just keep rerolling your dice until you get exactly the one die you need to yep. fit in the one spot you have still available. And it's also giving you like extra die to be able, the plus ones are kind of doled out over the course of the game. Yep. So when your decisions are smallest, you feel the most powerful to actually yeah. achieve what you want. And I think that is really like a masterclass of game design. And totally key in making this a game you want to play again when you finish. Because if you don't have those tools, the randomness of the dice being rolled, which is inevitable, is just going to frustrate you. So you'd rather give the player tools at the end of the game to try to make what they want to happen happen and say, okay, well, at least I saved this stuff to try to make these calls rather than just being a shot where it's like, oh, the dice didn't get rolled. I guess they didn't get rolled. Oh no. Right. And like at its worst, it can feel that way. But at its best, it's like, yeah, I saved my B-rolls and I got the six exact six that I need to fill the exact box. And like it's it's amazing. And it's yeah, cool. absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right, well, should we move on to theme? Brendan, what do you think about the theme in this game? Would you say it's like a high like environmental theme? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We're not going to touch on that. I do like the foxes. The little <laughs> fox is cute. That was a joke. I but... know it was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is there anything else in the decision space that you feel like we need to touch on? We talked about the type of decision space. The and feel. The feel a lot. Um, let's, let's think about, too, like, the clarity. So like on your turn, you have, you know, and, and with that, the size. So on your turn, you have uh, between one and six options of the colored dice that you can use. It's six, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or there's is it five? five? No, there's five no, there's colors. Five and then colors there's white and white die. Yeah. So you have between one and six options, but often much less than that, right? Because in the first roll of a given round, you're not going to take one six that effectively throws away the other two remaining turns, right? Yeah, so we can yeah. we can easily declare that in that situation a choice, right? With 100% clarity, we would it would never be optimal to take that action in round one of the game. Um, so really, it feels like the decision space in any given turn, like any given role of the game more often than not you're you have like between one and three actually viable decisions to make mm -hmm. so i don't know in that in that sense you know it's pretty it feels pretty small but of course the game gives you tons of those decisions right it yep. doles them out uh, again and again and again uh enough repetition with that that you really have it feels like you have plenty of time to make better or worse decisions of the course of the game that are going to create drastically different outcomes at the end of the game, right? Talking about like scores ranging from 150 to 300. Totally. And I feel like on top of that too, Jake, is this, we haven't covered that many games on the show where dice rolling is a factor. Let's just looking back over the course of the last 70 episodes, there aren't that many. So we haven't talked about a little bit why these sixes are so magical in some ways. And it's because the probability of a die roll is known. It's easy. It says 
I know the chance of rolling a orange six if the orange die is rolled next turn is one in six. I know that. Um, and I think that this game does a good job of making the decisions feel rewarding and putting just enough information, but then also just enough fuzziness with like the white die uh, and the different systems that are there to not make you want to like go mad thinking about the probabilities, but enough that you can think about the probabilities and the amount of turns you have left and sort of say, I can afford not to fill in this box now because I think I'll have the chance to do it again. Whereas this purple six feels really valuable. So I should just do that. And then it adds this wrinkle with like the blue area where you have two dies coming together. So I, I don't know. I think that it's really clear, but there's a lot of uncertainty because it's die rolling. Absolutely. I actually like this far in the episode and talking with you about how good this design is. I'm already gonna, Bump it. I'm, I'm bumping up to an eight. Yes. Already. <laughs> like, Let's go. <laughs> 24 minute bump. Here we yeah. go. Yeah. But it's so true. And I think like it's, pretty amazing how often the game gives you two choices but the it's very fuzzy about what's better and yeah. i think the richest you know decisions in that space and the reason i'm bumming up is because like it, it i'm reminded of castles of burgundy like my favorite yeah. game of yeah, all yeah. time and and i think they both do such a similar thing with dice where it sets up this engine that makes it so like rolling a dice rolling the dice like every time is like giving you your own little puzzle to unpick. And I just think it's so amazing that games can be this kind of like Sudoku puzzle generator. And this one does it so well yeah. because the decision can really be straightforward, right? Okay. I can take the lowest value dice and fill this spot, but like so quickly complexity gets added. And it's like, okay, but like I really could use this five now but that five will mean I only have two dice to play with in the other two rounds. And what is the chance that, you know, if I roll the green die first, then that'll mean it's impossible for me to use the yellow die. You know what I mean? Totally. Like the, like the complexity, if you want to spend time and think through this, you know, each of these puzzles feels knowable or it doesn't feel knowable. It feels like just fuzzy enough, like right just on the edge of your ability to actually calculate the best option that it's like always interesting. Totally. It's also, you know, so many of the games that we play, the decisions of what you should do within a given puzzle aren't necessarily obvious, right? Like a lot of games, maybe it is kind of obvious, like the ideal thing would be to do X. Uh, but in a lot of games, like A Feast for Odin, I don't know what the optimal thing I should actually be doing is typically. And the design of that game is designed because the fun of it is exploring that decision space. And Gonchon's Clever is the opposite, right? Like I know what I should do in the purple puzzle. I should always put a six in it every single time, right? Like easy, I've got it. But the interesting thing is working within those juxtaposed puzzles and figuring out the juicy, interesting heart of this game, which is the system of the waning dice when you're the active player. And I think that that's another amazing aspect of the system with regards to the decision space is it's both a breath of fresh air at the start of a round when you have all six dice and a breath of fresh air when you're making the final decision as an active player and you only have to worry about picking between three of them. Like I love both of those and I love that the game does both because if I was rolling six dice every single turn, it's like, oh my gosh, it's too much even though it's a really simple game. And if I'm only working in a really small space, it sucks. So this game is just that it's dynamic. Like if you have to pick one word for Gonchon's Clever and why it's so good, it's because it's a dynamic game. And it emphasizes that dynamism with the bonus system. And that's what makes it brilliant is it takes us like it knew what it was and made it more itself through adding that system. So good. I mean, it really feels like Wolfgang Wars is like Monopoly. I mean, or sorry, yeah. Monopoly, like you Yahtzee. Yeah, right. It was like, I'm going to make Yahtzee awesome. Yep. You know, and, and people get to play on other people's turns. What's the crappiest thing about Yahtzee? I get to sit here and watch my brother play like, okay, you should. Why do you do that? Oh, no, I don't like I'm not engaged. Right. But in Gonzo Clever, you are engaged. I care what dice you don't use. I might even say like, oh, you don't want to take that one. If you right. roll like a yellow three and I really want that yellow three to slide over to the tray um, and those moments, then I'm, I, 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 I love moments where I'm engaged in watching other people roll dice. Right. Because it's fun. And whether they use that yellow three or not, you're 
you are paying attention, right? Mm -hmm. If they don't use it, you're like, yes. Yeah. If they do use it, you're like, no, like, why would you do that? And that's so much better than being like checking your phone. Oh, wait, is my turn? You know? Yeah. 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 So, yeah. So that's like a fantastic, you know, innovation. And actually, as we talk about what roll and write games can do, they seem to be one of the best mediums we have in the board game hobby for like allowing people to play on the same turn. Right. Yeah. And this one does it in a small way where a lot of roll and write games is just like, here's the role. Now everybody, you know, go to town. And I think there, it's just a, a small segue. Like I think there's a, or a side, there's trade-offs of both things because uh, I recently played Riverside and I talked about a geek way and that game was purely one person rolls. They don't get any special privilege being mm-hmm. the active player. You know, it could be the same person rolling every single time. Um, and then everybody just uses those dice equally to fill out their sheet. And that's kind of a drag in some ways because like you don't, A, like it doesn't have that like dynamic feeling of like now it's my turn. So like yeah. I get like to to lead the, you know, play. And also it's like, it really just like highlights the multiplayer solitaire, right? I was, we played with six people and like the person at the far end of the table from me, like, you know, I had no clue what, what was happening with them you know and it's yeah. so and it didn't so matter he, right it didn't matter and here it's like i you get that little moment which is so fun in board games where it's like okay now i'm the star of the show and everybody gets to watch me and i get to make choices i want rolling rights to give I, like for some reason i feel like within the, this movement of the revivification of rolling rights over the course of the last half decade when they've like really crashed back onto the scene around the time that Welcome Two was first published in Sensen, I feel like there's been this thing where initially they were published and they were like, "Well, why would you want to play this game where you're filling out a worksheet? You could play it with up to a hundred people. How cool is that?" And it is cool, but it's you know what's also cool mixing up that formula. And I wish Roland Rights had the permission to do more things like this because I like both that both can exist. And I don't feel like games should have to just like Roland Wright games should have to justify the fact that we shouldn't all have to play simultaneously. Like I want more of this. I still want simultaneous play shared input Roland Rights that I could play with all 6,000 people that live in my town. Right. Even right. though I'll never do it. Yeah, I mean, having a game that plays up to 6,000 is actually not feel, filling an important niche, niche in, in my, my life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, let's jump into the actual dice selection mechanism and what makes it so good and interesting. Okay, so let's do it. Yeah, so I touched on this briefly uh, to say that the, the, the I guess the, the exciting thing about the dice selection mechanism is the inherent trade-off, right? You can, the higher value dice are better uh, because in at least one, two, I guess in two of the areas on your board, you just get points equal to the die values that are placed there. So in in both those two, the orange and the purple sections, you'd always prefer to have sixes placed into them. And sometimes you'd really prefer it, uh, (laughs) but we'll talk more about the specific values. But even in the ones that don't require or that don't give you points just for the you know raw sum of all the die values that you write into that column, the higher numbers are more valuable because of the fact that when you take a high value die, any dice that has a lower value, you ha- no longer have access to that round. Mm-hmm. You won't roll them anymore. So even though in the yellow area, I don't get points for putting a six down there. If I have the opportunity to use a six in yellow or a one in yellow, and it's the same difference to me, like I would pick the six every time. And the yellow six that's in the bottom right of the board is a really important square. So though it's not that it's literally better than putting a four on your board in some cases, the yellow four, they've been privileged somewhat in the design of the sheet with yellows because that bottom yellow four, if it's the yellow six, if it's the last one you place, could be getting you 20 points, an extra die, and a fox, which could be really impactful. That's big time. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it is impactful if you get it. You know, that just goes back to like how this decision space yields like interesting decisions almost, not almost every time. Sometimes you like get a slam dunk, right? 
it's like, oh, that's exactly what I needed. So I take it, especially on the last roll, right? Once you're you're down to like one or two die. But in those times, like in those scenarios where the decisions aren't interesting, it's the exact same thing in Castles of Burgundy. Like if the decisions aren't interesting, it's because something like really emotionally dynamic is happening in my yeah. head where I'm like, yes, this is exactly what I needed. Or in, in this game, it's like, damn, <laughs> like I now, like not, you can put yourselves in position in this game where you can't write anything for one of the roles. And if that happens to you, it's like, especially cause I just play solo on my app. It's like, well, I might as well just like start over. Cause it's, it's like that. You feel like you lost devastating. The game. It feels like a fail case. Yeah, yeah exactly. To- especially if you, if it's not in the last turn of the game, like, Oh God. Right. Uh, yeah. I think also too, Jake, the fact that everything isn't equal is important for the game's decision space because, okay, if you roll all sixes, great. So fun. I'm excited. It's whatever. But if you roll all low values, and I have a, a reroll, that then becomes an even more interesting decision because do I spend my reroll just to get eke out a little bit better value? Can I use that low value to leverage that crappy outcome in some way that still benefits me? Or do I need to spend a... My skill is tested, right? Is now the time to spend a reroll? Do I have to fill in certain squares now to have a chance at pushing further on a certain track that I've invested in? And we'll talk it, I think, a little bit more about like how this game, like, can you specialize? Do you have to be a generalist? We'll get into that, I think. Um, but I think that that makes the decisions really interesting. And I love saving up my rerolls for the end. But sometimes I feel like I have to use it on turn three when I roll like a bunch of ones and twos, you know? I, yeah, I think that's like one of the most difficult decisions in the game is like how to use the bonuses that you get. Like, yeah. It's not just the rerolls, like it's also the plus ones that you get. So that allow you to place an extra dice. Like I played this game a lot, like a lot more than I play most games we cover on the show because of the fact that I'm playing it as like an app that I can play through around in five minutes. Yeah. You know, I went on a two hour flight the other day and I played this game like fifty times. Totally. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh so and like I still even after all those plays. Like, I still don't have a really good sense for, like, especially in, you know, the second or third round, you maybe have a one or two plus twos of it or plus one extra dice available to you. And I never get, like, a good sense. Like, the game doesn't have, like, great feedback mechanism in it for, like, when I use one of those early versus later. Mm. Um, you know, because I feel like I get to the end of the game and I either get a good score or a bad score. It's hard to know like on what ground to, to base that on. Yeah. But yeah, so like it's t- tough to tough to know how to use those as they're doled out. Totally. One way that the game does get feedback is you could end up in a spot where if you save them, right? Like there's this good tension with the plus ones where it's like, I want to use them on what I have to use them on. So later in the game, I want to be able to use them to fill in holes or spots that I have where it didn't come up, especially in the yellows or the blues. Um, but if I wait too long, and what I need doesn't come up, then I've kind of wasted the value of them, right? Like there's this tension between if I can use it to add an extra purple six, that's a lot of points. But if in doing that, I give up the chance to fill in a crucial spot in the yellow uh, grid and I miss out on 20 points because of it or something, the dice didn't roll right or whatever, then that means I used it incorrectly by using it too early. But if I wait and the stuff that gets rolled, there's just not the dice that I need for the plus ones. And I'm like trying to hole fill and I have nothing to fill the holes with, then that feels really bad too. So I like that it's another timing puzzle sort of, but I agree the feedback's not great. Also using it early has the other benefit, I think of kind of letting you know what you will need, Mm. you know? So like if, right, if you use it, early to you know get a purple six or whatever that unlocks you know chains into some other combos early on then you might have a better sense as you get into the next round it's like okay i have to take this yellow four here because right like i I just know that's going to be something i'll need so i think it's it's interesting and it's it's at least for me uh remains like an elusive decision to sort of crack the optimal play of 
Totally. And in a stunning turn of events, sarcastically speaking, we really like the mechanism that gives you complete like freedom and agency in the game, which I, I, I we, you know, whether it's the Pinecone and Cascadia or these sorts of mechanisms we like um, and I think make games better almost unequivocally. It, but if you have an example of a game you think, and now I'm talking to a listener, not to Jake, if you think you have an example of one of these sort of skill testing mechanisms where you have a limited pool of tokens that you can spend to do this moment of high agency in a skill testing way, if you have an example of a game where you think that makes the decisions worse, I would love to hear that example. Great question. I too am interested. But let's jump on and let's briefly touch on the different tracks in the game and kind of the different decisions that they all offer. Totally. Man, there are a lot of decisions interwoven in this game. What, what do we call it, Brendan, when we have a lot of different goals that are all happening? Oh, like overlaid. Yeah, but it's not overlaid. Juxtaposed. It's juxtaposed, right? Would yep. we consider this like juxtaposed? Because each of these tracks have their own goals and pursuits that we're trying to achieve. And per, uh, progress at one comes at the opportunity cost of doing the other. Right. So that's why they're juxtaposed. The overlaid yep. puzzle here is the foxes, right? The bones. Yes. Yeah. All right. There we go. Good. We Cleaned got up. there. Yeah. All right. Let's so so let's talk about the yellows first. Here, I'll let you kind of go first. Okay. So I think we should do like I I will be fully honest. I played this game a ton, and I still don't know what the optimal way to play the game is. And I think part of that is because the optimal way to play the game is whatever way your dice allow you to optimally do in a given play of the game. But yellow there rocks. De- there are definitely people that know better. Like yeah. Like there are people. Like I think. Let's just, we can just say this now because I think you kind of invoked it. Like, I think this game potentially has a shelf life, right? Mm, like, sure. I think that there is probably like an optimal sort of like order pursuit to to fill out these tracks. Yeah. And once you've kind of figured that out, uh, it might not be that fun for you anymore. And, and I know that because I've seen people in our Discord say that and they're like, I just broke it out. I, I wish I remember who was saying this, but they're like, yeah, it's broke out again. Here's my score. And it was like 200 and like 87, which is like an insanely high score for me. But I think that shelf life is just going to be kind of dependent on how good you are at practice kind of puzzle. Yeah. At least for me, it's hundreds and hundreds of games. Sure. Same. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. The puzzle in each yellow is really interesting. I really like yellow. You are rewarded for filling in rows with bonuses and columns with points and the diagonal gets you a plus one. I think that yellow is really good because it gives you flexibility. Um, Yeah. Right. Like the yellow dice are, it's fairly agnostic to which are important. Low values are pretty important. And so are high values um, are pretty important. So you can sneak in yellows at given times. I think the points don't pay off super huge and the bonus actions. I think when we evaluate the different areas, we have talked about that in terms of the points you're going to get versus the bonus actions. It's like average, but it's good. It's like your bread and butter. Like I always, I like yellow. I feel good when I'm feeling in yellow. Definitely yellow is not one that I feel like, I think like in this game, like you have to, right. It's a game that's asking you very, very explicitly to, specialize and diversify right like you you get the most points for each set by completing all the values in it and yellow works the same way because the last die that you put in is definitely unlocking the yeah the last box you check off is definitely unlocking at least two yeah two huge benefits you know you're gonna get points and you're gonna get uh, uh a free unlock uh, and all of them work the same way, right? Where you get the most benefit for filling them in all the way. Uh, but you also want to get specialized because you get points for foxes equal to your least valuable one. I don't think that... So I find that my games play out where I'm like always have one that is sort of the one I've neglected the most. Yeah. And I don't think yellow is one that you can neglect the most and be successful. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that that's a product of the flexibility that it gives your plays. I agree with you that I typically don't neglect yellow. Um, And when I've tried to, I feel myself pulled in and pulled in and pulled in. And I think a lot of that is because 
of the way that values work in yellow, you kind of get forced into it in terms of leaving more dice open if a bunch of them roll low. You're just like, okay, I'm going in this direction. And blue functions this way a little bit, but because it requires a more specific role to fill things in, it's inherently less flexible. Blue is really interesting because blue can give a lot of points overall. Overall, in terms of the actual points you're getting from yellow, right? Uh, You can get... 36 plus 14 is 50 plus 10 is 60. Uh, That's a lot. That's a lot. And blue gives 56 overall if you fill in all 11 squares, but yellow has 12 squares. So overall for your opportunity, blue is giving you slightly more points. Um, But I find blue can be tough because you have to make oftentimes concessions to fill in the two or fill in the 12 because you need the double sixes or the double ones and or you have to spend a bonus doing it is what right. it ultimately comes down to a lot of the times yeah the other thing that's interesting yeah about yet blue i think is it has the hardest uh foul like the hardest boxes to check off yes. in the whole game yeah like like rolling a six specifically on a white die and specifically on a blue die is very rare right again you don't have to know the exact probability of that to just like intuitively know like okay it's pretty unlikely to just roll double sixes um and and the same with right double ones of course so some i feel like blue has like a different kind of like pulling effect where if you have the opportunity to just cross off your 12 it's really hard to not take that opportunity right away yeah yeah so i feel like again blue is it's a, it's a good one. It also has the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven bonuses if you fill it out all the way on top of all those points. So it's it's a difficult one, difficult one to neglect. Really interesting the way it works out. I agree. Also, if you're curious, the the chances of rolling to the blue six and the and the white six at the same time, two point eight percent of the time. So it's pretty low. Yeah, pretty low. Yeah. But you can actually increase your odds of it getting it if you or no you can't really do it with this 12 right interestingly because of Mm, uh, the dice drafting mechanism the 12 is strictly harder to get than the two yeah because sometimes like if you see that you've rolled a blue one and you are trying to cross off the blue two square you could strategically choose a higher dice to put the one blue die in out of the game so that you have two more rolls plus re-rolls to get the white die to roll one and achieve that. Um, so you can, yeah. One sixth of the time, 16%. You've locked it in. Exactly. So it's not that you have to roll it in one shot necessarily, but very, very difficult to get that 12, which also makes it so that when you have that one opportunity at the beginning of the fourth round to put anything in there, it feels like, I I think that's probably the square that I'm crossing off the most with that. The 12 or the two? The 12. Yeah, yeah. Okay, this makes me want to get into why that might be, but I think we should cover the other squares and then we can come back to foxes. Okay, so the greens is you have to have higher die values in each subsequent one. Once you've reached five, then it starts over with one again. So the optimal way to play this row is you only ever put the apex of what you need. You should never put like a a six green and a one because you've probably like you've messed up a little. Right. It's inefficient. Yeah. It's okay. If if you're doing the last, if you're doing the last roll anyway, it's fine, but it feels bad still, but that might just be like some kind of like trick feels wasted. Right. Like a, like but it wouldn't really be wasted. Well, I think if it's juxtaposed with pursuing a purple or an orange, it's a little bit wasted, right? Yeah. But if it's, and, and there's a good value that you could get. Uh, yeah, it depends. It all depends on the value of the dice, but it feels bad. Have you like ever made it to the end of the green track? I think green's really hard to get to the end to, and I'm not sure I have. I don't know that I have either. And I feel like that's because of what you're saying now. Like, I, I think it's like I'm, my brain is telling me like, oh, it's always a waste to put mm, this in there. So like in the first round of the game, basically, if I don't roll a green one, I'm not putting anything in the green. Mm, interesting. You know what I mean? And then yeah. 
it's already like you're already behind the eight ball there. One thing that's awesome about green, though, not a ton of bonuses, but there's 11 spaces in green. So if you fill in all of green, you get 66 points, which is the amount of points that you'd get if you put all sixes in purple. So it's really rewarding. You get fewer bonuses than if you filled in purple with all sixes, for sure, because purple is like very bonus heavy. But green in terms of points is pretty generous. Out of the the straight lines filling in puzzles, it it kind of it drips points, but yeah. it's restrictive. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe that is what is keeping me from breaking the three hundred point barrier, which is yeah. possible, but I've never achieved. Dip into green, though. Yeah. I will say, I think one of my favorite decisions in the game is because of the restrictiveness in green is trying to plan my green X bonuses. Right when you like fill in the right. third row of yellow or whatever, like I always am like trying to save those for when I can use it to cover up at least a f- greater than or equal to four and ideally the greater than or equal to five. And I definitely don't want to use it when I have a greater than or equal to one. Like, oh my gosh, I'm so right. sorry for throwing out this beautiful gift you gave me, Wolfgang. <laughs> you know? Okay, let's talk about orange. Yeah, orange, I think, I think like green and orange are my two leading candidates for like neglecting them for too long and ultimately shooting myself in the foot. So orange has it's like the most open you can put anything in orange at any time and they just get straight points at the end of the game equal to what you put in there which is cool it's like the straight man that keeps everything all the wacky other ones honest and then every on the fourth square the seventh ninth and eleventh square you get multipliers for what you put in there so if you put a six in the fourth square you're not just getting six points you're getting 12 and if you get all the way to the end and put a six in there, that's 18 points with one die, which is actually insane value. Yeah, crazy value compared to any other action in the game. You've invested a lot to get there. There's not as many bonus actions as there are on purple. There's slightly more than there is than there are in green. I, I find myself neglecting orange too, Jake. And I think it's because it doesn't have flashy lights. It's like, it's this is so weird. Only, I feel like only in Gonshan's cover it, would I say something along these lines, but orange is kind of like eating your vegetables. Like everything else, you get fireworks, and here it's just like, I should probably be putting things in orange because yeah. I don't get a bunch of points. But it's like you'd never want to put like a three in there, right? Right. It, or lower. And even like a four doesn't feel great. Yep. So I think it has the same thing with like the green going on early, where it's like sometimes you probably should be doing that, but. If I have the choice between a three orange and, you know, marking off something in almost any other uh, category, I usually neglect the orange one. Uh, Though the flip side. Yeah, I'd say the flip side is like a four in there. That's honest work, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's getting the job done. Totally. And even if you're putting a three, which doesn't feel great, if it creates an opportunity to get that 18. Or if you put a six, you know, sixes yeah. and then both the two X's at towards the end of the track and the three X, I don't know. It's kind of paid you paid back for the hard work you put in. Yeah. So. And, and also the 10 space gives you a six in purple, which is huge. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you really get rewarded for getting the end of this track. I maybe have done it a couple of times, probably not enough because I don't want to eat my vegetables. I want to play with the super fun, sexy purple track. (laughs) And I'm happy to put low value things in it and shoot myself in the foot. I think purple, you have to be really disciplined, right? Because what we were talking about, about orange, the flip side's true of purple. You and I, our headspace is like, oh, I'm putting a three. Oh, well, it gets me a plus one. Oh, well. Yeah, it gives me me that bonus. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And the bonus could be good. I mean, it's always value, but... Its value is surely better on a five or a six than it is on a one or a two. Yeah, and the other thing I forgot to say about orange is it has the same thing with green, where you have to be putting things in orange so that you've at least filled up the first three by the time you get an orange bonus. Yeah. yeah. Or else it feels awful. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Right. Totally. We should say, Jake, we didn't say in purple you have to go in ascending order. So if you do a, a one, then you can do a two, then you can do a three, but you can't put a two until you get to six and then you get to start over. Which also tricks you because then I can talk myself into a one in purple. Like, sure. It's not that bad because then I can do another purple really yep. soon and get another sweet bonus. But it's probably pretty bad. <laughs> one point per die. You're not scoring too high, even right. if you get a bonus. Yeah. But subjectively, it gets me, you know, and maybe yeah. that gets us to like 
finally to like the bonuses and combos portion of this conversation which is like what this game does is it gives you bursts of endorphins when you get to chain off combos and like i feel like playing this game now is like I'm like, so, you know, it's like my brain is telling me like, you feel good when you fill in the purples, yeah. you know, because yeah. the purples give you the combos, which combo into other things, right? Like, I don't feel good when I put a four down, but I do feel good when in, in orange to get four points, but I do feel good when I put a one in purple to get one point. Yeah. It's like, that's telling me something about like what is happening subconsciously in my brain with and like the incentives there are not necessarily the incentive for actually scoring good in this game totally i'm basic and i like it yeah that's, right that's filling in purple with ones yeah <laughs> and if i'm right there with you and i think that that's an interesting part of the game is like to play really well you do have to be disciplined in what you do because you right. are trying to like juxtapose and the uncertainty of how much the fuzziness of this game is like what's the value of a blue x it depends like the, the filling, getting the blue X bonus on purple. What's the value of it? It depends on what you do that follows it. What other things are rolled? Like all that is really variable. So that's some of the fuzziness. So right. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's okay, definitely wait. purple is the candy crush row. Totally. <laughs> what's your favorite color and what's your least favorite color? Okay, my favorite color is purple and least favorite is orange, I think. Interesting. Yeah, I think my favorite is yellow. Which I, I'm sure it's not that great. Like, I know strategically I shouldn't be doing it, but I just like... I mean, if you get all sixes in purple... Yeah. That has to be the best value. Value. Purple. Definitely. Definitely, yeah. definitely. Okay, I guess we should... And then my least favorite is orange, but I know I need my vegetables. Okay. Foxes. This is like the Reiner Canizia mechanic, right? Where, like, foxes, you can get up to five, and then you score the number of foxes you have times the points that you have in the area you did the least of and this is why jake you say that even though everything else tells you to specialize foxes say nah you you dear player must be a generalist because the points there potentially are in speaking of the most points possible that is where things get astronomical potentially but it's really hard to get five foxes it is got them all five yeah i don't think i've ever gotten all five foxes you know i don't think i have either and i'm looking at this board now that's why i have up on my phone yeah, yeah we're, we're as both we like, record yeah yeah <laughs> uh it doesn't seem like it'd be that hard yeah to do it and i yet like the game when you're playing it makes it feel that way makes it feel that way because and i think that's because like the appeal of specializing is so high yeah right like okay like i mean to get all the foxes you could it would just take three squares in yellow four squares in blue what seven in green eight in orange and seven in purple so it's really the green and the orange because your brain is just like no you don't want to spend all that time diddling around in green and orange to get those foxes but if you only do right if you only do four in blue the points in blue are seven. And if you only do the four in yellow, the points in yellow are zero. So you then have to do like, okay, I have to do at yeah, least but, but the two do, extra. Yeah. But you could do six in yellow and get 20 there. Yeah. Yeah. That'd feel good. And then you got to work on blue a little. This is how we end up being generalists. Because right. it's like, if I'm going to get five foxes, I better make it count. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I like this mechanic. Six yellow, six blue. Then I think you're in business. Yeah. I feel like we might be getting close to if you fill in the whole board and doing yeah, good right. territory. But that's okay. I uh I think this mechanic is the type of mechanic. This is a cherry on top mechanic. It's where like the game without this is awesome. And then you add this and it's like, well, you did it. This is people are gonna talk about this in ten years. You yeah. Know? Yeah. It's good. It's a good it's a good mechanism for sure. And it, I mean it's just a just such a solid thing. Oh, drop my phone. Just like that phone, I hope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Dude. it is just such a solid thing. Like, it works so well. And part of that is that it doesn't matter because of the... I don't know. The fact that this game does have shared inputs, right? We've mostly played it as a solo game, but it does have shared inputs because the dice that I don't draft, you get. I think that little bit of coupling makes it so the randomness of, like, I rolled and I rolled amazing and you rolled and you rolled really poorly balances out and still feels fair and that's the pill that i think is tough for 
some people to swallow with role and rights where you don't have shared inputs. So I think it also wins on, on that account. I don't know why this game is just an eight for me though. I think ultimately Jake, it's because at the end of the day, it's the, the, it's an incredibly consistent experience in terms of its decisions. Um, right. I'm always making the same types of decisions. And that's why the person you were talking about earlier, uh, who's an avid decision space listener, friend of the show, William said, I've, I've eaten that meal enough. I, I'm looking for something else. And I think that that's why I feel that way too, is ultimately Gonshan's Clever is Gonshan's Clever. And it's great, but it's still always the same thing. Yeah. I think that's why I initially kind of went with a seven and now it's an eight. But yeah. like the negatives is what is that? There's a shelf life, I yeah. think. There is. And I think like every time I play it, it's like, I've got nothing else to do. Yeah. Like that's the time I reach for this game. You know, if I haven't played it multiplayer, I'm sure it's fine. Yeah. Multiplayer. Right. Um, but I don't even, if you know, I, I don't imagine I would pull this off my shelf very often if I had people over to play games. Uh, I think I probably like it best as that, uh, high score generator that you can pass around yeah uh, you know and play with friends that way or just compare scores online that way uh, which ultimately like in the greater context of board gaming is not what i play board games for. sure it's it it's amazing at filling that niche like i'm so happy i have this downloaded on my phone for flights and stuff like that and i would recommend it to anybody for that i like this app much more than i liked playing uh cartographer app yeah. on my phone yeah um and i think and i think part of that is just because of that kind of like vintage appeal like it really feels like this is like yahtzee but awesome it's a game for the ages yeah totally yeah. even if the age of time that you play it for is, is short it's also why you know someone's been screaming jake for the last hour and two minutes well maybe 40 minutes that we haven't said that twice so clever and clever cubes exist and that is the the response the panacea to this conversation right it's like okay you you did this now have this flavor now have this right flavor. and that's great that's why those have been as success those follow-up games designed by wolfgang Warsh have been as successful as they've been and i don't feel the need to go back because i think the well is going to taste pretty similar and i'd rather play a different role and right i'd rather play riverside like jake mentioned and try that one because i really like that designer or uh, heck i'd even i'd love to go play railroad inc yeah i think the other reason that this game works better for me in that like solo app roll and write game than others is because like the decisions are so bite-sized yeah right? yeah like we talked about yeah they can like you can spend as much time as you want thinking out your turn and i think the decisions like the yeah the decisions you're given warrant that like if you spend a lot of time thinking about it you could probably do better but you don't have to yeah you can just quickly play it and intuit it in a way that i think like cartographers just like asks more of you totally you have to like think about like okay what is like the objective in three rounds from now and you know all this other stuff where here i don't care about at all you know every decision is just leading to the next one and such like like the game flows i think much better for that um but yeah like so i think i think that is sort of the niche that this one fills agreed well i think Okay, last thing on it, right? So we talked about what a great designer Wolfgang Warsh is. We talked about there's uh, the second and third version of this. Uh, but what has Wolfgang been doing lately? Uh, I saw just today, the day that we're recording this, he has two games in the Kinderspiel de Yard nominee for Best Children's Game of the Year, Quacks & Co., a kid's version of Quacks of Quedlingburg and Ouch Sean Clover, a kid's version of this game, which honestly I want to play. Like, I feel like a kid's version of this game might be just like super awesome for me. Yeah. I think that, uh, so I'm going to quote Jeff Engelstein from an episode of Ludology, and I've never forgotten this, and I think it's true. It's Wolfgang Warsh's world, and we're just living in it. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Decision Space. Brennan, it's been awesome chatting with you. Please do give us a review if you find yourself with a few moments to spare. 
Uh, you can join our Discord. You can find us on Twitter. You can support our Patreon. We have links for everything in the description for this podcast. As always, we want to thank Hembry for our intro and outro music, their song, Reach Out. Hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. Also, for all you listeners out there, remember, Jake's mom accidentally gave us one star in a review on iTunes, so just help us balance it out. Okay, have a good week. Baron Park next week. Rip for his